Navigating the think-manager, think-mail stereotype, still prevalent in many organizations, can be challenging. And to do that with skill requires we really need to develop some capabilities that are not always that obvious. And here's someone who can really shine a light on that. Hi, I'm Penny DeVolk. Welcome to Grit in the Oyster, a podcast offering insights for women leaders. Why grit in the oyster? Well, because an oyster makes pearls from a foreign object or irritation. And that's often how we can feel as women leaders in organizations today. The trick is not to get spat out, but to grow into that natural gem. Through conversations with leaders and experts in the field of women in leadership, I hope to offer insight and inspiration as well as practical advice, helping you navigate those grit in the oyster moments or times in your career. It's an opportunity to reflect, to step out of the fray, to tune out some of the noise and tune into being the best leader you can be. Hello from London Business School. It's my pleasure today to be speaking with Dr. Raina Brands, who's the Assistant Professor of Organisational Behaviour at London Business School, where she's been for six years, prior to which she was on the Faculty of Judge Business School at Cambridge University. A leading researcher on social networks, gender bias and leadership, Raina's work is published in the Administrative Science Quarterly, the Academy of Management Journal, Journal of Organisational Behaviour, amongst others, and has been featured in the New York Times and the Financial Times. Welcome, Raina. Delighted to be here. Raina, I'm wondering if we could start with your telling us a bit about your own story, your path and your career and your leadership story. Absolutely. Uh, I started my life actually as a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I am Australian and I did an undergraduate and a master's in organizational psychology in Australia. Uh, and I went straight into the workforce. I was a consultant uh, for four years. And I was doing work around uh, redesigning selection systems and um, hiring systems and trying to make them uh, more rigorous and more fair. Uh, and that was typically with the clients I worked with, their goal was to get move away from interviews, which uh-huh. aren't very predictive, and move into systems uh, that really do predict who's going to do well in this organization. Uh-huh. Uh, and being uh, quite naive, I thought this was an easy task to do. You just get the right systems in place, the right people will come through. Uh, but I quickly saw that that wasn't the case. Uh, and in fact, no matter what kind of systems we were putting in place in these organizations, uh, the same sorts of people were getting through. And actually, in the firm I worked in, it wasn't just the usual story of it's all white men at the top. Yeah. It was actually a bunch of white men who went to the same high school. Okay. So So very distilled. Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) So it seemed to me that there was something else else going on. Uh, And, you know, obviously, intuitively, we know that networks matter, relationships matter. uh, But I really wanted to understand the science of that, of mm-hmm. that kind of relational, informal aspect. Uh, so that was the topic or the question I had in my mind when I went to Cambridge to do my PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd actually always, I'd always wanted to do a PhD. I found out there was such a thing as being a doctor that wasn't a medical doctor when yeah. I was eight years old. Uh, and when I found that out, I went home and I wrote a sign for my room, Dr. Raina Brands. Fantastic. Um, yeah, my dad you was were eight. thrilled. Yes, I was eight. <laughs> my dad was very happy. Uh, and, uh, and so I'd always had in my mind I was going to do a PhD. And I always had this quite an academic calling. Uh, so I went to Cambridge 
Uh, and that's when I really switched focus. I moved into the business school yeah. and that's when I started to think about this topic of social networks. So the friends you have at work, the people you go to for advice, mm. anyone really around you that you have an informal relationship with, uh, you can map those networks and organizations. You can uh, pick out people who are in certain positions and you can make some very robust predictions about the trajectory of your career, your work performance, mm -hmm. simply based on where you sit in that okay. informal network. And so that's, uh, you know, that's what I work on now. And as you sort of indicated in my biography, the thing that I particularly work on is how we can understand uh, those social networks as creating invisible ladders, which right. allow some people to climb and leave some people behind. Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm interested in uh, helping helping women climb in organizations. Yeah. Mm. So what are some of those, um, how, how to make those ladders more visible then? Mm. Well, a, a lot of what I teach in the executive education classroom uh, is about teaching people that these ladders even exist. Right. So a lot of people, and you can think about this as an individual, but you can also think about this as, as a manager or a leader. Mm -hmm. Uh, we tend to think of things like friendship as incidental to the work. Right. You know, and often leaders get irritated when they see people, you know, being friendly. You know, they think they're distracted from work. Mm -hmm. uh, but actually, these relationships are what drive organizations. You know, if we think about any organizational performance, responsiveness to change, uh, how, how well your organization will withstand an external shock. Uh -huh. It's the quality of the ties, like friendships, that really matter, that mm -hmm. really count. So I think a lot of it is just understanding that these relationships aren't just this incidental thing. They're a huge part of your career. Uh, and then uh, once you have that kind of baseline understanding that these relationships are important, uh, you know, there's a bunch of things I teach around uh, well, what kind of relationships do you need to build yeah. and how could you go about that. And do you find any gender differences in people becoming more intentional and deliberate and uh, making more transparent their social networks mm. and how they might support their careers? Interesting. So I, I don't know if I see gender differences in, in those areas. Um, I do see gender differences... Well, we know that one of the things that creates this invisible ladder that allows men to climb mm -hmm. uh, is this principle of what technically we call homophily, uh, but you would know as birds of a feather flock yes. together. Yeah. yeah. So we prefer relationships with people who are like us. Uh, and that can be on things like gender or age, mm -hmm. but it can also be on things like, well, we, we both love photography. Yeah. But when you come into an organization, uh, when you're scanning the, you know, the social landscape, typically you're drawn to people who look like you. So you'll, yeah. you'll, you'll start talking to the person who's same gender, same age, same ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And then through that interaction, you'll discover all these other similarities and that reinforces the tie. Mm -hmm. So that's why we see uh, in, in the terms of gender, we see friendship networks being organized by gender. Men tend to be friends with men. Mm -hmm. Women tend to be friends with women. Yeah. And that's a problem uh, for women because uh, obviously men are represented all the way up yes. the organizational hierarchy, uh, but women not so much. So it can constrain their network. Exactly. And the power of the network exactly. that might actually be fueling their career exactly. or their visibility. Exactly. Mm. But increasingly what I find is that that dynamic uh you know, of course, is hidden to people. But what I'm finding in my 
executive uh, teaching is that once men understand that this dynamic is in place, it's a real insight for them and they understand that I've been unintentionally excluding women because I think there's a lot of appetite right now you know, to improve diversity and gender representation. Yes. And I see a lot of uh, executives and companies that are just completely frustrated because nothing is working. Yep. And that is one uh, very simple fix that people feel, oh. To throw a light on Exactly. Yeah. I just need to sponsor women. I need to interact with women. I need to extend this kind of sense of inclusion that mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I only give to men at the moment. Yeah. So there is that gender difference. So disrupting some of their own autopilots. Exactly. And I agree. I, I sense a huge appetite mm. in both men and women mm. to disrupt those autopilots yeah. that uh, don't serve everybody in the organization well. Exactly, Yeah. What about the, um, you've written in the past about the think manager, Mm. think male model um, stereotype that's still lurking out there in organizations. Is it still in organizations? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So think manager, think male. This is the idea that when we think about the characteristics or the traits and qualities that we expect to see of a typical leader, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of overlap there with the qualities, characteristics and traits that we typically assign to men. So things like being dominant, mm-hmm. uh, being assertive, uh, taking action. They're all masculine, very masculine traits, traits agentic, still. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So that effect was first identified in the 1970s. Mm. Uh, and yes, leadership the leadership bias against women mm-hmm. is certainly still very prevalent, uh, but we are seeing we are seeing increasingly research shed light on contexts or boundary conditions where maybe it doesn't apply mm. as much. Um, do you think it's a generational thing that I guess once we have a mm. certain number of women in leadership roles, then those old uh, stereotypes that have been millennia in the making mm. will start to atrophy. What's your sense of that? Yes, absolutely. So we know that uh, representation matters for stereotypes yep. um, because you know our stereotypes are formed through experiences. And so, of course, if you have more experiences mm-hmm. of women in leadership, uh, it, it changes your expectations yep. for what a, a good leader or a typical leader will look like. Yeah. Uh, so certainly... Yes, you know, in countries, um, Nordic Scandinavian countries, where we have much more representation of women, mm-hmm. you can see this, uh, you know, positive feedback cycle of the more you get, the yep. more women have access to these positions. Mm-hmm. I do also think that, uh, to some degree, uh, our expectations about work are changing. Right. Uh, so a lot of this is driven by the traditional organizational model of nine to five work or long, long work hours. Yes. Uh, very hierarchical organizations yeah. uh, where there are, you know, big power differences. These are the sort of uh, circumstances where that think leader, think male association will yep. be really strong. In organizations where uh, there, you know, there are fewer power structures, it's a bit more flat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as organizations really start to tackle the problem of uh, inflexible working in a meaningful way. Yes. Some of that is kind of reflexive masculinity that we see reflected in how organizations are, 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 are formed and structured as we see that start to go away and become uh, more balanced, uh, not necessarily more feminine, but more gender neutral. Yes. Yeah. Then again, we should see uh, some of that think manager, think male association yeah. go away. Mm. And so 
Given the um, evolution of Think Manager and Think Mail, and that will distill, what advice would you have for women leaders who are aspiring to leadership roles in that context for how they might navigate that? Hmm. There is a lot of interesting research uh, showing that for women, once you get past a certain level in leadership, uh, there is a lot of uh, benefit to blending the stereotypically masculine agentic approaches to leadership about you know, dominance being assertive uh, with more stereotypically feminine communal approaches, you know, fostering cohesion between group members, uh, interpersonal concern and warmth. So I think if you are a woman leader, uh, you can you can certainly blend those approaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can you can the the roles demand that you be agentic, masculine, dominant, assertive. This this is what we need leaders to be. Yeah, uh, and you can offset the kind of negative stereotyping or bias that you might expect to receive by by being warm and communal. Uh, and if you're aspiring to leadership, uh, the advice I always give is. It's most important that you first prove your credentials. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, you know, we know that women either trade off warmth or competence. But yes. if you want to get into leadership, uh, if you if you go for warmth, trade off competence. Yeah, you never get there, yeah. right? Uh, so you prove your credentials, uh, and then again uh, blend that communality with with the agency. Yeah, mm-hmm. really interesting. Um, one of the things I love about your work is the debunking of myths around women in leadership, of which there are many out there. And a lot of them have, a, you know, a theme running through them that informs leadership development, which is that girls just need to, <laughs> the girls need fixing, mm-hmm. or women just need to learn better negotiation. Mm-hmm. They need to build their confidence, um, you know, and they're risk averse. And even mm-hmm. though, you know, good data shows that there really isn't anything to demonstrate that. And that explains why, for example, women don't put themselves forward for senior executive roles. But your research that was highlighted in Harvard Business Review a couple of years ago tells a much more nuanced story. Mm. Yes, this is one of my, uh, one of the areas I feel very strongly about that we always look at women's behavior in isolation of the systems and structures around them. Uh, and that doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, we think of women, as you say, as lacking in confidence and they just need to lean in and how can we fix the women? Mm. Uh, but we can't fix the women unless we fix the system that they're in. Yeah. Uh, so that particular research that you're talking about, uh, we were looking at that topic of well, why don't women lead in yep. to executive roles? Why, uh, why, why aren't they as likely to apply as men? Mm-hmm. So... Uh, we were looking at this in a very specific context that is relevant to the executive uh, echelons, which is repeated interactions yes. uh, between okay. candidates and firms. Mm-hmm. So at that very senior level, recruitment processes take a really long time and firms and candidates really consider each other, you know, over across a number of years. You know, I have a friend who is uh, chief of staff for one of the FTSE 100 CEOs, yeah. uh, but that recruitment process, it, it took two or three years. They considered her for multiple roles uh, and, uh, you know, before they finally put her into something. Okay. And so what we identified in this research is that in that process of consideration between a firm and a candidate, uh, if women are rejected by the firm once, yes, even if it's just a soft rejection, like we don't think you're right for this role, but we really want to consider you for another role. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're much less likely to apply again to that firm if another role comes along than a man would be. Why is that? What's going on? Well, I'm sure that's what you yeah, wanted exactly, to explore. Exactly. Why is yeah. that? And 
you know, is this just women not leaning in? Well, no. Uh, I would see this behaviour as as pretty rational, actually. Mm. Uh, by the time you are a woman in that kind of executive realm, uh, you've come through an awful lot of bias and discrimination. Mm. And, yeah, you've succeeded, but, you know, it, it talk to any woman at that level and she'll have had really, you know, negative salient experiences yep. Yep. Uh, with being treated differently or poorly because she's a woman. Yep. And so that that treatment, it sits with you and uh, it creates a question in your mind and that question is, do I belong here? And that's not the sense of do I think I, I can I can make it. Mm. It's, but does anybody else? Yes. Does the people making else? a judgment about exactly. my yeah, expertise yes. or how good I would be in this job. Right, yeah. If I come okay. here, will people value me? Will they respect me? Mm-hmm. Or are they just going to put me down? So this I'm is firm specific as yes. opposed to an identical role in a different organisation. So In yeah. this research, it's firm specific, but we do see this, uh, you know, this idea about people having belonging mm. uh, questions as, as domain specific. Um, so it, it could extend to the domain of executive leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, in this research, we were looking at it as a kind of firm-specific yeah. question. So if you are a woman and you have that question in your mind, um, you obviously you're looking for evidence. You know, as you evaluate this this firm, course, yeah, uh, you're you're looking for some sort of hint as to whether you will be valued and respected. And so what that means uh, is that you pay really close attention to how fairly you're treated Mm. in the recruitment process. And if there's any unfair treatment, you're going to weigh that really heavily as to whether you apply again. Okay, yeah. And it's interesting because what we saw is that uh, women who uh, said I was really unfairly treated, they're much less likely to apply again. But on the flip side of that, women who thought they were really fairly treated were much more likely to apply Okay, so it's weighted on both sides, negatively and positively. So that sort of fairness component is really important weighting for women. And that, uh, so everyone cares about fair treatment. Mm. Actually, human beings care much more about fair treatment than they do about fair outcomes. So even if an outcome doesn't favour you, you will mind less if you were treated fairly. But men in executive realms take that fair treatment for granted. They don't have to pay attention to this stuff because they are the dominant group, they're valued, they're respected, and they can just assume that is the case. So that's another invisible thing that just sits with them and they play that accordingly, quite unconsciously. Exactly. So, Mm. you know, when we look at women, you know, pulling themselves out of selection processes, and again, I, I had another friend being considered by a top American law firm same situation. They really wanted her. They weren't sure if they were, she was right for the role. Mm-hmm. She was going to pull herself out of the selection process because, you know, that was her thinking. Yeah. You know, because she was getting all these signals yes. that to her, uh, I'm not negative. valued and this is not fair. Exactly. Yeah. So we can't understand that behavior is as, you know, a women problem. We have to yeah. understand that behavior in the context of not only the system, but all the experiences you've had in that system. Yeah. Okay. Which brings that weight to it. Really interesting. So given that uh, many organizations, as you say, 
I don't speak to a chief executive, male or female, who was pulling their hair out that they can't bring these talented mm. women through. And and sometimes we'll say, they're just not throwing their hat in the ring. Mm. Or, you know, that old um, chestnut of, oh, a man will apply if he's, you know, mm. 60% uh, able to do the job and a woman will wait till she's 90. What advice would you give for mm. an organisation then mm. who really do want to make sure that their talent pipelines are not, mm. uh, you know, hemorrhaging women and that women will actively Mm. Uh, more actively uh, throw their hat in the ring. Yeah, so there's there's stuff that is very light touch and then there's mm-hmm. stuff that's quite radical that I'll yes. put out there anyway. Uh, so obviously... We the, like radical. Yeah, the light, <laughs> the light touch stuff is that falls directly from this research is clearly... Uh, in the recruitment process, you want to make... You want to be as fair as possible yeah. and be clear about how the procedures have been used and applied. So quite transparent. Quite transparent. Yeah. Because as we saw that women who were rejected but thought they were treated really fairly, you know, were very much... Stayed connected with the firm. Exactly. Interesting. Very light touch. Uh I think on the more radical end, mm-hmm. I think, again, embedded in the question of how, women don't throw their, their hat in the ring, how do we get them in? Embedded in that is the assumption that, again, women have to lean in. Mm-hmm. But you can flip that assumption and you can think about things how we, like... How do we wheel them in? <laughs> well, no, not even that, but think about things like maybe uh, it's an opt-out of the talent pipeline. Mm-hmm. It's not the case that you have to uh, apply for a job. It's the case that some, somebody in the organisation puts everybody in the pool and if you, you have to physically take yourself, you know, take yeah. yourself out. Um, same with the leadership, the talent pipeline. Uh, you have to opt out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as with a lot of problems with bias, uh, unintentional, unconscious bias, the more rigorous the systems and processes you have around your selection and uh, promotion decisions, uh, the less bias you'll see creeping in. So again, a lot of these conversations about careers, uh, talent, high potentials, high potentials, again, we see uh, men Men initiating these conversations, why? Because people are more receptive to it from men. Mm -hmm. Uh, Managers initiating these conversations with people who, for some reason, just seem to have that... That That little something. That little something, which is usually someone who looks like me, uh, who acts like me. We Um, all know what good looks like. It usually looks like (laughs) us. (laughs) Exactly. So if you can start to formalise those systems and procedures uh, and, and keep rigorous data on, well who is having these conversations and with mm-hmm. men versus women, uh, who is responsible for this, the more systems and data you can put in place, the less bias will creep into the, yeah. into the system. So, again, just, again, disrupting some of the autopilots and making transparent exactly. uh, the system, what's exactly. really going on. Exactly, because a lot of this is a lot of what I see with the organisations I work with, again, coming back to this idea of hidden social networks is, the the information that is beyond what is written in the HR policies about mm-hmm. well, how do you get ahead in this organisation it's in it's circulated informally yeah and if you don't have people telling you that information you just don't why know. would you know exactly yeah. so a lot of the how times, would you know yeah women sure women don't apply because you know they're getting a different set of information mm-hmm. so again as much as you can pull that out of the informal make it available to everyone uh, and I'm a huge fan of of targets, um, not necessarily uh, not necessarily targets for hiring, but certainly targets for selection pools. Yeah, um, we know that if you only have one woman in your selection pool, 
statistically there's zero probability she'll get hired. So yes. making sure uh, you have targets for how many women are in your selection yeah. pool um, and making key individuals actually responsible for those targets. We know that diversity targets are much more likely to be met uh, when one manager is responsible for saying, this is why we've hired zero women with zero women. Yeah. This is what we're going and to do And this is what it. we're going to be doing about it. Yeah. Really interesting. Mm. Um, other sort of debunking myths. Um, there's a lot of discussion, again, around what good leadership looks like, and often charisma comes up. Mm. And again, it's that, oh, that little something's about, a bit like executive presence. You sort of know it when you see it. But of course, you're often mm. having the same people looking at what they think mm. looks like them. Mm. Um, and I was interested in uh, your work on the importance of charisma for leadership mm. impact. And it almost turned on its head because often there's an assumption that given charisma is in the eyes of the beholder, is there a bias towards male leaders? And again, your research on social networks indicates that that's not necessarily mm. inevitable. That's right. And yeah, I'll talk a little bit about that research and then, uh, you know, a little bit more generally about, yeah. about charisma. Uh, yeah, so I managed to flip that bias. We do see this very robust think manager, think male bias, mm -hmm. but I found that that doesn't always apply when we're thinking about charismatic leaders. Okay. So charismatic leaders are uh, visionaries. Mm -hmm. uh, these are the people who uh, can really touch people's hearts and minds and inspire them to work towards grand visions for the future. And they really inspire that emotional excitement. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a great leadership skill to have because you just have to set it off yep. and people will work and mm -hmm. they'll work hard to achieve your goal. Yep. Uh, so it's a very efficient form of leadership. Yep. Uh, but it's it's also one where there is a bit more flexibility uh, in terms of uh, this think manager, think male uh, bias isn't, isn't quite as set. Right. In the sense that when we think about a charismatic leader, sure, they have a lot of masculine traits. Uh, and those masculine traits are things like setting a bold vision, mm -hmm. you know, coming out of nowhere to lead. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also a lot of uh, traits we associate with charisma that are stereotypically feminine. Mm -hmm. So this is these are things like uh, fostering, uh, you know, a sense of spirit or collective effort around a goal, uh, sort of giving power over to your followers mm -hmm. and letting them fulfill the vision. Uh, those communal power sharing, that's a lot more stereotypically feminine. Mm -hmm. So in my research, I was interested in uh, contextual cues that uh, might signal to people, well, this is, a, this is a context where women would be a better leader than a man, a charismatic woman. So, of course, I'm interested in social, social networks. Yes. So I was looking at uh, really the team, the team structure around leaders. And what I found was that uh, when the team was very interconnected, so uh, there's a lot of advice sharing, a lot of advice seeking. So if you think about it, you know, collection of 10 people and they're all really interacting with yeah. each other. If you think about a collection of 10 people mm. uh, and they're, you know, they're really interacting with each other a lot. Uh, this is a context where I see that, that gender bias reverse, where women emerge as, as charismatic leaders. And the reason for that is that when people are thinking about these very complex interpersonal situations uh, where there's a lot of relationships, uh, there's not one kind of dominant individual, uh, in these contexts we think it must be you know, quite hard to manage uh, through authority. Uh, you need to be very relationally skilled. Okay. So um, it's the kind of interpersonal power exactly. that they are drawing yeah, on. And it's defaulted to assuming that 
She'll be good at that. Right, exactly. So you have to lead through relationships and we think Mm -hmm. women are social specialists. This is all in the realm of stereotypes. Exactly. Uh, So in those teams, and I did study teams in the real world, uh, women, women, that gender bias completely flipped. Women were seen as much more charismatic than men. Interesting. Where we did see that old think manager, think male bias emerge was in a much more uh, traditional, I guess, team structure where... There's a kind of star or one or two stars of the network. Mm. They're kind of dominant uh, and everybody else, you know, seeks advice from them. Right, yeah. In those kind of star networks, uh, that's where we see. Yeah. We expect men because it's a it's a it's an interpersonal environment that operates on power, hierarchy, yeah. and that's where it's we think men It's a much more traditional, itself. yeah. Exactly. Uh, power structure. Yeah. But if we think about, you know, that finding in, in more general terms, yeah. Uh, you know, the advice I always give, particularly to my MBA students, is to really, um, for women MBA students, is to really fashion, uh, really think about fashioning yourself as a charismatic leader mm. uh, because there, this is an opportunity where you don't have to move too far from, uh, you know, stereotypically feminine ways of acting uh, to, to provoke uh, people's people's reactions towards yeah. you as a charismatic leader. Yeah. It's, yeah. There's fewer barriers. Exactly. I mean, you just let's just take the easy route. Exactly. <laughs> Whatever, whatever's going our way, exactly. we might as well take yeah. some of that. Exactly. So that's very interesting. Yeah. When you talk to your um, MBA students and we talk about, about you know, bias and organisations mm. and particularly how it reflects uh, on leadership, what's the response you get? Do you, are people surprised by this data? Are they enraged by the data? Mm. What, what's the response you get from, you know, young women now coming through um, into their corporate, you know, potentially with ambitions for corporate careers? Look, there's a real inflection point, actually. And just as you're approaching that kind of first leadership role, mm-hmm. uh there is certainly no one, no man or woman in my classroom who would say gender bias doesn't exist. Yeah. But I do have a sense that as you approach that role, there is a, a feeling uh, in the room that maybe this is this has gone away, uh, because actually in those first years of your career, as you as you reach that you know, first critical leap into management mm-hmm. leadership you probably experience a little bit less gender bias, actually. Yeah. Um, in the early years. In the Coming early off years. graduate programs, I think they do look very different even than they did 10 years ago. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we know that, well, a lot of professional services firms now have reached a point where they're recruiting more than 50% yep. uh, women in their graduate classes. Yep. Uh, and so we, the idea that women are less competent than men in kind of the technical professional realm in those early years, that does really seem to be attenuating. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is if you're a woman coming up through that system, you've probably been recognised as a competent woman. Yeah. Uh, For your technical competence and nothing else. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. There is this immediate inflection uh, and it usually comes uh, with my executive MBA students and beyond. They're in those first or first few years of management. Mm Mm-hmm. Suddenly it hits them like a wall, yep. this onslaught of bias, really overt bias. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a shock to them. It's a shock, yeah. Um, and it feels like something out of a different decade, mm-hmm. uh, but the same thing's been recycled about you've, you've got to work on your manner, yes. you don't have you enough gravitas. You need to gravitas. tone it down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Either tone weird, it down yeah. or you need to build your confidence yeah. and your presence. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of mixed messages. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and that's – so – 
you, those women obviously very mm. very receptive to yeah. to the ideas well the, the research but it can be a shock because on, on the face of it it looks like it's done it and does. um i think that's the real challenge and you know i agree it's often and maybe the second or third executive mm-hmm. position mm. when you're really starting to ramp things up that mm. your gender becomes very salient it does yeah mm. i mean i've even in my research spoken to uh, partners in professional services firms who are who are you know talk to about their gravitas or tone mm. and it just seems absurd that you could have you know, that conversation yeah have that conversation <laughs> with somebody who's you know clearly billing you know mm-hmm. millions of pounds for their firm anyway Interesting. Mm. The more things change. <laughs> yeah, the more things change, yeah. exactly. Um, so lots and lots in our conversation that we could extend on. But really fascinating, Rona, the way you have um, particularly taken um, the the kind of body of knowledge that is how we recruit and extended it into social networks. Mm. On the social network front, what advice would you have for women leaders or women aspiring to a leadership career? Mm. Uh, for those aspiring to a leadership career, uh, it's critical that you have sponsors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a mentor, obviously many organizations have mentor programs. The difference between a mentor and a sponsor is uh, a mentor is somebody who's just giving you advice, yep. developmental. Mm-hmm. A sponsor is somebody who's actually going to risk their reputation to get you yep. promoted. Uh, and sponsorship relationships, you can't really ask for them. You've you got to earn them. Yeah, and they've got to develop naturally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... You know, as a, if you are trying to develop one of these sponsorship relationships, you have to get in front of people, give them the opportunity to discover you and your competence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so as much as possible, uh, be working on on developing those relationships beyond your direct reporting lines. Mm. Uh, and you know, to echo a point I made uh, earlier, recognize that these you know friendships. They're not incidental. So really invest in time to get to know your colleagues, particularly colleagues who are senior to you Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of what you're asking about, you know, aspiring towards leadership. Uh, You can be quite proactive about forming those relationships. You don't have to force it. You know, it should come naturally. Mm -hmm. Uh, But be proactive in inviting people out to lunch, getting to know people better, taking those opportunities to showcase yourself uh, to a broad range of people. Okay. And acknowledging that that is part of the day job. Exactly. Not just a nice to do. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, a social network, any relationship is always two people. Yeah. So I don't like to say those things without giving the kind of organizational side, side of it of as well. Um, so for the organizations, you know, the advice is, you ha- again, if you, as much as you can structure work to get women in front of a broad range of decision makers yeah. in a way that it feels natural and uh, allows them to you know, showcase their work. Mm-hmm. So working on special projects, uh, staffing them across yeah. you know, different projects, different committees. Uh, as much as you're giving, if you can focus on creating those opportunities for women yeah. to allow those sponsorship ties to form mm-hmm. and educating uh, senior decision makers about the role of sponsorship in, yeah. in actually getting people through the organization. Uh, because again, often a light bulb moment for executives is, oh, I, I have to find a woman to sponsor. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. not realizing it, that nobody's sponsoring these women. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, there's, there is, 
you know, quite a bit of data out there that women tend to be over-mentored and under-sponsored. <laughs> and, uh, but you're right, as soon as a mentor sort of understands that, and again, it's a bit like the, the likes attract, mm. oh, it just never occurred to me to, um, you know, of course I'm advocating. I will spend my reputational and social and political capital on this man because I feel more confident it doesn't feel risky. Mm. So what advice would you have mm. for mentors around advocating for women and just moving through the discomfort that might be there for them? Yeah, that is a tough one because we are so driven by our our kind of gut yeah. in these circumstances. You know, the obvious advice is you don't rely 100% on your gut reaction yeah. to people. Uh, think about what data you have to support that gut reaction in both ways. So if you're very keen on a man, think about is there anything in their performance that really mm. that, that, that should match this enthusiasm yeah. I have for them? You Just know? ask yourself <laughs> yeah. why. Yeah. So always, always check the data um, mm -hmm. that, that goes along with your gut decision. So I, I think it's interesting when you say, you know, part of disrupting our autopilots so across the board is um, checking in with ourselves and becoming really self-aware about our own autopilots and the lens through which we look at the world and, and how we judge those around us. What advice, final advice, would you have for women leaders currently um, uh, in terms of your observations or women who are in their maybe their first or second managerial role but do aspire? to either a chief executive role or a much more senior executive role. Any any nuggets that you might like to land mm. for my listeners? I can tell you the piece of advice I most often give to my friends and uh, my students who come, come to see me, uh, and that is, I don't know if I can say this, but think like an entitled man. Mm-hmm. Of course, you can say that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. think like uh, an yeah. So put literally put yourself in those yeah, shoes and behave yeah, accordingly. Exactly. Ask yourself: Would uh, would a would a marginally competent man think like this? Mm -hmm. If not, then then I'm thinking the wrong way. Okay. Uh, you, you and we've we've discussed a lot of ways in which you know uh, women don't lean in. Women are risk averse. Mm -hmm. uh, if you if you find yourself uh, in a situation where you might be leaning out or you're wondering if you're risk averse, uh, recognize that you know that is that is not you. That is not your natural inclination. That is something that has been socialized into you. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's why I always give the advice of think like an entitled man because they've been socialized in a completely different system. Yeah. So just pretend that you haven't had all those experiences. Yeah. Because that that inclination you have to lean out might not be irrational. Yeah. Uh, so it, take yourself out of all those experiences and uh, pretend you'd had a completely different set of experiences. Mm -hmm. Would you behave differently? Yeah, great. And what would the world look like? Yes. Fantastic. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Uh, Raina, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been wonderful to hear, um, hear more about your research and, as importantly, uh, the practical advice on the back of that. So thank you very much, Dr. Raina Brands. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Grit in the Oyster. If you're enjoying our conversations, do subscribe, rate and review us on your podcast platform and join me again soon. You can also find more information and resources on building your best leadership self on pennydevolk.com, including my blog that covers topics from how to negotiate powerfully as a woman and building your authority through to having your voice heard and boosting confidence, all in support of building your leadership career.